0: Hey, this is Jerry Best and you're listening to Focus on Metal.
1: All right, metalheads. Welcome yet again to another week of Focus on Metal. Scott here. And Richie, and uh, we've got uh, oh, I don't know, a little bit of chat before we uh, we dive into uh, this week's guest. But anyways, before we get into that, how we doing, man? I'm good. It seems like it's uh, once again been forever since <laughs>
2: down here. Always is. Yeah. It's like a, every time we come on, we always you know start with that. It's yeah. Been a while. It's been a while. Been yeah. Well, it's no, true. <laughs> yeah,
1: It's true. But uh, hey, you know, you did a great interview. With uh, with Tommy a few weeks ago, and uh, Tommy Boland. Yes, yeah, yeah. and uh, and good stuff. So when you sat down, you picked up that box set over there. Yeah, so go ahead, grab that box set.
2: All right. This <laughs> is the Warlock, uh, Doros Flames right. and Agony box set. Okay, so which I have not seen. Right. Okay. What's it got? Dolls and yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right now, now, this is kind of like the. Uh, I was where's appalled. Where's, where's the hands? I just yeah, take it out, and take a look at it. It's, All right.
2: So this is the if you know the album cover
1: yeah this is definitely not a a uh you know todd McFarlane kind of thing it's 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 pretty horrible isn't it, <laughs> it yeah it's not great <laughs> so yeah i was you know i saw some of the pictures before and i was like oh that's pretty cool and it's a box set and all that and and then uh, so i got the box set with the cd dvd and the small eight inch recreation of the uh of the album cover and um yeah it's it's a very not well done eight-inch recreation of the album cover.
2: Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> the, like, the, the album's stellar, and oh yeah, the box is Al- looks really good. Yep. And they've reimagined the artwork to put more up-to-date pictures.
1: Yep, yep. And um, I'm hoping you know I've got the I've got the what is it? I got the blue and white vinyl still on order too. Is the blue and white? there's the black and white? The blue and white's well, you're been all delayed. On this. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm a pretty okay. big fan of, of Warlock going back and stuff too, and it, it's cool stuff. So, I mean, I didn't go with the the other version, which is the black and white vinyl with the uh, whatever five foot eight cardboard cutout that you can get for like a hundred bucks, which is like the <laughs> album cover as a giant cardboard and stand up cutout. Okay, um, I was like. No, and especially after I saw the little figure thing, I was like, "Well, hell no." Yeah. Um, but they did—they did do good as far as trying to put some packages together, and that was—that was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, I was like I said, I was like, "Really? Are you freaking kidding me?" And actually, that came in the same day that we aired the Tommy talk. <laughs> it was like just by sheer coincidence. It, I was like, I posted the thing, and then I went down the post and I gr- grabbed the package. So mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Now I'm I'm big into the physical product, mm-hmm. as are you. But you see all these dolls coming out and all that. I, I draw the line somewhere, mm-hmm. and that, I I don't go far that. Yeah, I'm more like t-shirt, vinyl, yeah. CD, yeah. maybe poster kind of thing. Uh-huh. What what do they call those things? Funko.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Funko. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You see people collecting those.
1: Yeah. They just had one. It was um, they did a special one that went so you got the the remastered black album and then the four funko figures i think it was maybe a walmart exclusive or whatever i i don't know they just they looked terrible to begin with and it was like no i don't, I think don't so. go there uh, yeah.
2: cuz i'm 50 <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah that that, that's
1: horrible, isn't that it? That one in the Doro box set yeah, is pre- it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, I'm calling it like I see it. Usually I like most things. That one yeah. there, I was like, um, what the one hell? One other
2: thing on that. Yeah. Um, They changed the running order on that album to close with All We Are. Mm-hmm. What's your take on a band doing that? You have a classic album. It's in, it's embedded in your brain with a certain running order. Yeah. And then I understand why they change it, because mm-hmm. that's the big song
1: and they want it at the end. Yeah. But...
2: Do you like bands messing around with the running order when they're playing a the whole album?
1: Typically not. I kind of understand why they would do this one and end with that one. So it, it kind of made sense to me. And I also figured that, okay, it's they're doing it at Sweden Rock. It, the, the crowd is diverse as hell there. Probably, probably one of the most diverse crowds because of the lineups and things. You know, like Vakken it tends to be, it's all metal. But Sweden Rock is all over the roadmap. It's pretty cool. And so I think that... They may have also changed it a little bit just to cater to, okay, well, there's going to be people in that crowd, a lot of them, that have no idea what that running order was. And so they just were like, oh, well, we remember this song. And so, you know, I think that that might play into it, too. Don't know. I'm just guessing. But I think that could be a possibility. Yeah. But usually, yeah. I mean, for a lot of them where I've, you know, especially stuff where you grow it up and, you, and you're and you listening to albums. So you're listening to the whole album and you flip it over. And, and it that's it does literally get ingrained in your brain. To the point that, um, you know, things like, you know, Def Leppard, when, when you think of, like, bringing on the heartbreak, and then at the end of that, you expect that it's going to start going dun, 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 you know, and, and you want to go into Switch 625. My brain automatically, no matter what else comes on after it, my brain does that right into it. So it's, yeah, usually that stuff does it and get ingrained in my brain.
2: I'm not a fan of changing the in order. Yeah. I'm just not. You're I'm, damn I've damn seen furious. Megadeth do Countdown, <laughs> and... They could have fucked around to run an order there to yeah. end with symphony yeah. and sweating bullets and um, what was the other foreclosure of a dream? Uh-huh. But no, they played a
1: song one, song two, sure, and, when, and when an we saw when we saw song um, eleven. Jeff Tate. I mean, he he kept both albums in their running order as well and stuff. And and yeah, the Judas Priest when they went out and they did the uh, the British Steel one. Um, that one I definitely would have been really upset if they changed the running order because my anticipation. Um, you know, at the end for that, just, that, you know, having that song at the end and knowing that they'll probably never play it again on any tour. And it was just kind of like, oh, and that's going to be like the last one they do. And, and it's going to be, so that was, that anticipation was pretty cool. And yeah, I would have been upset if they changed that one. And, but again, that's another one too that's definitely ingrained in my brain on what that order is.
2: It's interesting what Metallica did when they played the Black Album, they played it backwards. So Enter Sandman was the last song. But they played it in order, but it was yeah, backwards. and backwards.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you still would have had The Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters in, in the uh-huh. middle. Yeah. But they ended on the big song. Yeah. And then Sad True was the second to last song, which would have been uh-huh. the second song anyway, if they had gone it the other way.
1: Yeah, that one... I don't know, that one is kinda of a little bit different. I mean, it's neat that they did that, but I think that one... Especially because that was kind of an advent of a lot of new people deciding, oh wow, we like this band. That that was almost like an like an a la carte album. You you know, it got things got played on MTV, and so you might know only you know three or four songs out of it, and 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 they had a lot of the radio play. And so yeah, I think that one was one of those things where you had the that individual song experience. You know, with me, I mean, yeah, I, I was doing all those albums right along. So it was like, okay, yeah, I get the black, black album. Well, this is different. But I was still listening to it front mm. to back. Mm. Um, but I think that's one of those ones that there's a shitload of people that came into the band at that point, And they, again, like I kind of call it, they, they have kind of an a la carte on it instead. Yeah,
2: so. yeah. I don't wanna, we're not going to spend too much time on Metallica. No. The one at some thing, point coming up, we yeah. will, though, because it's w- just an in the room. One thing I want to bring up is, uh, you know, and we don't talk about COVID that much, and I'm not really going to talk about it, but one of the consequences of it, if you want, is all these anniversary shows for albums that reach yeah. the milestone. Yeah. The bands now can tour it for like three years straight. Uh-huh. Because you look at Jeff Tate. Yeah. He's still doing 30th anniversary <laughs> shows for Mindcrime, or not Mindcrime, Empire. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's probably going to be doing them next year, and the album's going to be thirty—you know—it'll be thirty-five yeah. years old, and they'll be still doing thirtieth anniversary shows. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's kind of a bummer because yeah, I mean, was it the Symphony X twenty-fifth anniversary one? I'm definitely bummed about that because I had the tickets for that one, and it was like a perfect day. That was going to be good. I think it was what it was. Primal was on that bill. It was like, oh, this is going to be a killer show. And now it's been rescheduled, but it's basically it's it's Take on a- like a, well, like a weeknight. Type
2: of deal. With him. I don't think any yeah. bands are playing. Yeah,
1: and it's, so the line, you know, all of that, and, and I know they they changed management and all that stuff, but it was like, oh, crap. It was like, I had awesome seats, the bill was awesome, and, and then it's kind of like, ah, this just isn't working in my schedule anymore. And it's like, suck. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
2: So, yeah. Well, did you see Jeff Tate is playing, uh, people aren't going to know where this is, uh, he's playing in a pub
1: in Drake, it's called The Boat. The Boathouse.
2: Is it? What, the Boathouse. How, 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 is that I've a played, pub? Uh, it,
1: well, it's a it's a like a little bar. It's I can't call it a little bar either, because but it, so with I don't know. You probably never went to any of those places in that neighborhood in Drake It. Me, but, never. Okay, I've I've actually played there. Draket is <laughs> the next town over from where we're recording. Yeah, I've this. played there. So at one point, Draket, believe it or not, Drakeet had the most dirt car, dirt track race tracks in the U.S. Believe it or not, <laughs> it was a car racing mecca. Okay. And, People now, joy and, and, and <laughs> you wouldn't know it now. And the other thing is, is that where that is, is, is I think it's Muscopic Lake is the lake that's across the street from it. And so that whole thing also was a big vacation spot. And so that area had all these bars that were all surrounding that lake. And that's, that's one of the ones that's there. I can't remember what it used to be called when I played it, but um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fairly decent room. They, they just spent a crap load of money. Um redoing it and oh shit, I can't think of the name. There's the guy that one of the co-owners is a singer in one of the local bands around here too, that they played for years. I can't think of the name of the band now, um, but he did it with a couple of guys who have a plumbing company and uh, they redid the whole thing before COVID. And actually they were even having some shows where the band would play on a stage like downstairs, and it would get broadcast upstairs, okay, and stuff. But yeah, it's it's a it's a cool little venue. They've been having a lot of shows there now.
2: So Tate is playing there, I believe, next month. Huh? Now, the last show we saw, I saw before COVID, yeah. was March twenty twenty, and he did the thirtieth anniversary. It was a tour. good show. It was good yeah. of Empire, uh-huh. and now in November twenty twenty one, he's doing the thirtieth anniversary shows of Empire
1: <laughs> and Rage for Order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the tour a, the anniversary that never ends yeah yeah it's uh, interesting I, I, wow I can't I'm gonna have to, I, one of my one of my guys at work he 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 loves that venue and I'll have to tell him oh, yeah yeah Jeff Tate's playing it he probably should go see it because he I mean he although we got lucky because he had that great opening band and he was able to pull in the bass player from that opening band who was phenomenal and he really he had the Eddie Jackson stuff down and it's a big part of the music, and he I think he really helped that show a crap load, having that bass player, you know, so I don't know how we'll, how we'll be or what band he's going to have when he goes out this time, but I think we got lucky with the show we saw.
2: Yeah, the show was good, but it's the same show. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, only, the only thing that'd make me go, it's up the road. Yeah. It's 40 bucks. Yeah. Plus whatever booking fee, or they, I don't know what sort of booking fee they'd have for that place, but. It's Tate doing the same two records that mm-hmm. I saw last year. So my first concert
1: back might be the same guy
2: <laughs> doing an anniversary show.
1: Yeah, and you'll be a at a year apart, a, a, a new venue that you've never been to before. You'd be like, "Holy crap, there's like a lot of stuff around here." <laughs> yeah, it's 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 bizarre because I remember, um, I don't know, maybe it was about I don't remember about well, four or five years ago that. Uh, we were driving back from Nashua and, I, and, and uh, I took my girlfriend through there and she was like, holy crap, like I never knew any of this stuff was here. Like this is really cool here. And it's like, yeah, and I kind of explained all of it and stuff. But yeah, it's, there's a lot of history there people don't know about. Mm. And priest canceled.
2: So that was Halloween. That was in this town. Yeah. Still, well, they had to cancel. Yeah. Richie Faulkner had a heart attack. I got to tell um, you though, that
1: guy, talk about luck. Oh, yeah. holy crap talk about luck right He'd been dead easily yeah i mean uh, but well, he had the three he, things that work for how him. how old is he early 40s i think so yeah, yeah he's a
2: lot younger like, yeah and he did a lot younger
1: than the rest of them and he didn't you know he didn't have any symptoms and stuff but it's i mean the fact that he they had played a shorter set because they weren't headlining so they only did 45 minutes he was pumped with adrenaline from playing it was a festival was it Um, something, I can't remember, no, it was just like, I think it was just a multi-bill deal. Okay. And then, and so he was pumped with adrenaline because he's always going crazy on stage. So he, so he had that. And then one of the, the best heart centers in the country was four minutes away from the venue. Lucky guy. So if, you know, if he didn't have all three of those things, he probably would be gone.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, but, but to have all of that add up like that, uh, it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then the other show that was announced a couple of weeks ago, because I haven't seen you in a few weeks, Winger was supposed to play in, in Foxborough tomorrow night, mm. which would be the 22nd of October. And last weekend they had to cancel due to unforeseen circumstances. And I pr- I'd be honest with you, I'm a massive Winger fan. Yeah, I know Foxborough is probably an hour away from here or a little over. Yeah, And it was a Thursday night. I... I think I would have gone to that. Huh. And I was pissed. <laughs> and then they rescheduled it for October twenty twenty two. I'm like, really? Wow.
1: Really? Yeah. That's uh yeah, that's tough. I did I actually, you know, I got lucky. Uh was it last the weekend before last last outdoor show out at Indian Ranch. And I know it's really not metal, but thirty eight special, awesome show. She got us front row like front row center so it was great they did a great show of course they're doing all the hits right but and you really only have the one original guy left in there um but just they did a really awesome job crowd crowd out there is always awesome too and so that was you know good outdoor show sold out everybody was having a blast and i think it was a week two weeks before that we did uh because her brother-in-law Cause he kind of wanted to go do something with us. He's always wanted to be like, I want to hang out with you guys." So we went to Hair Fest. So it's all like it was all like '80s cover bands, mm-hmm. and again, great show. Crowd was awesome, and you know everyone was just out there having fun and outdoor show in the day. And yeah, it was so it was good to get out and do a couple of shows. anyway. probably
2: some of the cover bands played the stuff better than the actual bands themselves. Now. Some
1: of them did some really good jobs, and um, one of them is on one of those uh is one of the finalists on one of those cover band shows too. Um but yeah they all they all did um did really good and uh yeah sounded sounded I was a, there was a few things where it was like and of course I'm being critical like no that's not the right guitar for that and uh nah, no you missed that oh, note that fucking <laughs> anal retentive
2: about shit that out of you.
1: There was well there's some things where it's like <laughs> Uh no, that's uh, uh no that doesn't work. Um People don't give a shit, they're liquored up. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but for, for me, I look at that and go, and, and granted, the expectation for those bands is usually a lot higher too, but you only have to learn one band's thing, right? And, and so you can kind of become that player and learn all that stuff. And you don't having to worry about playing in another style or anything else like that. You can lock in. And uh, so it's kind of like, well, if you're going to do that, then you probably should really make sure you've got everything down. And, um, so, you know, that was the kind of thing where it was like, uh, yeah. but I, I will say the, uh, what was it? Um, uh, dirty deeds was the guys who closed it out. And then, you know, Boston based ACDC band, phenomenal, phenomenal, including bringing up somebody on bagpipes for a long way to the top. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! Yeah, That's and hardcore. And she, yeah, she kicked ass on the bagpipes and did backing vocals too on it, and then came up for at the end for something too. But yeah, I mean, it was like they put on a great the show. They
2: wear to school by uniform. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Suppose <laughs> your tribute band, you got to go all the way. They, 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 they did. It was it. They did a really good job. Even the fact of you know having the guys who were you know being basically Malcolm and Cliff hanging back. Of course, they didn't do the um, real true ACDC thing where, if you've ever seen them live, when it's time to sing the chorus, like Cliff and Malcolm would just walk straight forward to the mic, yeah. sing, in and unison. walk straight back. Yeah. <laughs> um, they didn't quite do that, but it was, they, they did a really good job. They sounded awesome. And um, yeah, really, really good band. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, anyways, now that we're 20 minutes in, so this week, we got J.J. French on, which is pretty cool. And um, I like the fact that he's, I'm, at least I've never heard this anywhere else. He's got a new book out. and He's calling it a bizwa, which is a business memoir, right? So I thought that was pretty interesting. I think he probably coined the term. Who knows? But uh, uh, I thought that was an interesting subject. I haven't read the book. I think you've read the book. I've
2: read it. Um, I got it sent to me.
1: and well, Actually, I bought it. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, I got it sent in a PDF. Uh, fucking hell! It videos, is rough doing that. So I bought the book,
1: but uh, it, you know it sounds pretty interesting. Um, and you had a great chat with him as well, which is which is cool. But it's uh, uh, what is it? Twisted, twisted business. Twisted business. Yeah. I swear to God, I can never remember the name of the damn book. Twisted business. Yeah. Uh, My life in rock and roll.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, we talked about his podcast in the beginning as well. Yeah. Got the French Connection. He's on, he's on podcast one. Uh, and he doesn't have the normal guys on it. And even when he does have the music guys on it, like he had a great one inter- conversation with Doc McGee. Oh, huh, cool! And he goes really deep with Doc because he's a manager as well. Right. So it, he's got that slant on it where mm-hmm. he'll ask a lot of uh, uh, maybe more in depth, informed questions than someone like. I would ask Doc McGee. Yep. I'd be like, you know, what's, is this guy really an asshole? Or, yeah. you know, what was it like managing this band <laughs> or something like that? Whereas JJ will get a lot more deeper than I would. Yeah. Um, but he had a great chat with JJ, and he gave me huge compliments during, for the questions that I asked him.
1: Yeah, it obviously, you yeah, know, went really well because he even started telling you stuff that was like, oh, crap, I never really told that story before. Yeah, so, yeah, it
2: it made me real feel really good because... Said it before, you know, we we don't get anything for doing the show mm-hmm. financially or anything like that. And one of the be- best compliments we can get is when some an artist says that you ask great questions. Yeah. That makes me feel like I'm doing something worthwhile. Yeah. Um and to get it from someone like JJ who's been in the business for yeah fifty yeah. years and he's got his own podcast that he's probably getting paid to do and Yeah. You know, he's been in a massive band called Twisted Sister for years and done tons of interviews for the book.
1: And, and done a fair bit of management oh, as yeah. well and stuff. So, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, he managed seven dust. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, I didn't
1: actually get into.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I only had half an hour. It was half an hour and I just cut a chart because I wasn't given a time limit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was really good. And I think, you know, it's, I don't think there's a lot of books that are like that either. And, and it's interesting now because, you know, some of the other ones that came out before. So, like, you know, Duff did one and stuff. But the 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 business and even you know jj stresses it in the interview that you know it's a business that it's changed a lot um even more so now with um pretty much there's only you know guys like you and me buying physical and it's you know it's a lot of singles and streaming and all you know and now even touring opportunities have kind of shit the bed and it's it's a really different landscape so to have um kind of another book that's a little bit more up to date, I think is really cool. And it did make me think about, and I've mentioned this before that, you know, there used to be this guy, Peter Nichols that would go around and do um, seminars and you, you know, you pay and it was called doing music and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point that was geared to what was the do's and don'ts in the music industry there. And, you know, his examples and things that guys he worked with is things like extreme where, you know, they were a major band, a couple of albums in and they had nothing to show for it. And it was because they just didn't know the business part of the music business at that point. And just, and they didn't have people watching out for the right things for them either. So it's kind of either, you know about it or you have someone watch out for it. You have a, you know, a good manager that is, you know, out there to help you. Um, and, um, but you know, any of those seminars now, I don't think a lot of that would apply to anything that happens today. And those were, you know, pretty well attended and big deals, but I think something like this is a really good, kind of a reference too Mm. as well as if you're kind of historian be able to dig in and and hear some of the you know jj's past
2: yeah i think some people out there actually probably more than some they've got this warped view of the music business Uh uh-huh um that i think how would i how would i put it if we do our day jobs you do nine to five or in your case nine (laughs) nine to whenever you get out um, or maybe even earlier and later. Yeah, it's more um, like 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so God knows when. Um, how how would I put this? When they when they listen to music or they go to a concert, they're off the clock. So they don't have a view of the music and the bands uh-huh. as being as much a business as the normal regular yeah. job. Yeah. And some of that, I think, is is fed by the bands that, the, the bands make it seem like they're deciding certain things when it comes to the, the music business. Mm-hmm. Like one example I'll give you, and it comes up a lot recently, is you've Nicky Six opened and he's gob about the fact that they, they didn't they didn't do the, the, the stadium tour because they didn't want fans to get COVID. And I'm like, that wasn't your decision. That was the fucking promoter's decision. Because they probably, probably, it. Didn't,
1: probably didn't do it because they didn't put guardrails on the stage but, for him. Yeah, but what, that's what I'm <laughs> saying. Like, they're feeding that. So yeah,
2: people yeah. think then that the band decide all these things. Like, you know, they put the tour dates up and the band decides where they're going to play. And right. It, and my take on all that, it always comes back to this. Um, the fucking plumber or the electrician isn't going to turn up to your house if you're not going to call him and pay him and book him. Mm-hmm. It's the same with a band. Yeah. Right? So where am I going with this? <laughs> But, um, you know, people just have this warped view of the business. And JJ in the book goes into detail about how fucked up it is. Uh-huh. And it really is fucked up that if you don't have a hit. Like, take, take Twisted Sister, right? Yeah. What would they have, two hits? Two, they have two bona fide big, big songs. Yes. Right? Yeah. They, they're, they're lucky to have those two songs. There's a lot of other bands out there that are struggling at the club Uh level. Yeah. And they had like a minor hit. Yeah. You know, they might have have a gold record. Yeah. And they're playing casinos and they're on multi-band bills Mm -hmm. every week, doing the fly-in dates and all that. Yeah. And they're they're struggling trying to to do the best they can. Yeah. And JJ, very clued in when it comes to the publishing and, you know, licensing the songs and Mm -hmm. all that. Um, another band that I think is does the job is Queen. Yep. Queen licensed their songs a lot. Like these. Once you own the, the rights to mm-hmm. the songs and all that, yeah, you can make a lot of money. So if if you're in a band, um, JJ's book will scare you because of the amount of work that it takes to get somewhere, and you're not even guaranteed to get anywhere. But right. he was sober for all of it. Yeah.
1: D and have you read Dee's book? I have not, but I I know that yeah, he was pretty much yeah, just straight straight arrow the whole time, and,
2: yeah, and, and driven, yeah, and if you're into that side of the the business with the story, see what JJ does that, and he does it really well, is he has all these keys to success that mm-hmm. he, he he explains, yeah. Now, now the book isn't that the book's only about 170 pages, but he has all these keys to success. There's seven of them. And um he'll explain what they are and then he'll have stories to back each one of them up. Yeah. And it reads as if one connects to the next to the next mm-hmm. to the next to the next. So if you want to really get an idea of what the business is actually like and who's actually running it. Yeah. Um and you know this I think is a great
1: read. Yeah. Yeah. And really I think read. there's you know, a lot of a lot of it too gets skewed on uh these you know these TV shows where you know America's Got Talent and things like that too, where suddenly you know now you have people that are in there that think that oh I can if I just get on one of those that's it I'll make you know I'll make it and it's like
2: yeah but the people no who make you, you it are, to, people who make money on that is
1: Simon fucking Cowell well and well that's the thing is, it, is <laughs> that's the business part of it yeah. right but they don't see that no. right see so they, because they equate somebody knowing your name to like, oh, that's all the success and all it, And it's, it's not, it just it wasn't,
2: isn't. Wasn't, uh, to take years ago when MTV had the cribs show on that, uh, they had all these fancy houses for all these stars. And then yeah. you find out that the fucking label owns all of it. And the artist hardly owns any of it. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's all like window dressing. Uh-huh. It's to make you look really good. And it's right. like, I've got 50 cars in the garage yeah, yeah, and the minute the fucking cameras are turned off, the fucking forty nine of them are taken away to who really owns them? Yeah, it, I mean and the it's, other it's, ones, it's, the other ones not fucking yeah, the and so, and so the coming. business builds
1: this big <laughs> fantasy around it because that's how they're going to build up the oh, you know, I want to, I, I want to be like that person. Um, but the reality is, is that yeah, it's just like you don't, you don't really have any of that, you know. And it's, it's just a, it's a giant facade. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have, you know, bands and. You know, that's a whole different thing where, yeah, he, what, you know, the determination with Twisted Sister, you know, is that thing. I don't know how much of it, you know, that J.J. talks about it in the book because obviously I didn't read the book. But, um, you know, the fact that D was kind of that he was driven to succeed, but he was also driven to prove to mostly J.J., but the rest of the band as well, that he could be a songwriter. He could do it as well as them. And and that drive, it gradually made him take control of the band and but that drive also kept that band going and it kept getting it bigger and even if other people started to enjoy other things instead and whatever you know he, he, there was that huge drive to, to, to keep driving that and that that is definitely a key ingredient to any of that is is doing that and then you know the other tie-out is you going back and you're watching managers and you're watching your money and you're watching the freaking label and all that stuff too is and and never saying yes to everything because mm. you, because everything you say yes to, you're paying for somewhere the, along the, the line. The thing I'd love,
2: I'd love to know, and I, I don't think I've ever asked any of the musicians this, and I don't know what sort of an answer I get if I did. When, when does the love of the music leave them? And let me explain that a little bit more, because you've been in bands, mm-hmm. like you get you get in bands for the love of the music, yeah. Right. And you're kind of naive about the business. Um, You know, you think, right, I, I, I want to play with these guys. I really want to get good on my instrument. I'm really enjoying being in the room with these guys. There's a great chemistry and all that. And then maybe after a while you start getting somewhere and then the business gets involved and then the fucking chemistry might go because of jealousy and people might come and go out of the band and mm-hmm. all that. Yeah when does the love of the of, of the music that i really can't wait to get on stage that i i can't wait to play this song i love playing the song when does that go and the only fucking driving force is i'm doing this because i want to get fucking paid
1: i know for me I'll, you know a lot of it is if you start to try to play material that isn't really what you want to be playing and that's where you start being like I don't like that song I just wrote. I wrote that for the totally wrong reason. Um you know cuz like as an example, right? I mean that's what what happened with Peter Frampton, right? He always says it's a classic thing is that he he floundered when he stopped writing songs for himself and started trying to write songs for everybody else. And that's when he lost his way. And I think you know I think that's that's one thing that definitely kills it. The other one is and it's more the it's more of of the one for me is uh, is just when substances come involved when you rather than having chemistry it's oh crap I, we're gonna go rehearse or we're gonna go play and I have to work around this guy that's coked up and this guy that's gonna be drunk and you know and that just wears you just down it's so demoralizing you know you go in and you have a a really great practice and you start writing something and you go the next week and you realize that everybody that was out of their gourd has no recollection of anything you played at all and it's like great that was a huge waste of time awesome um and that stuff just after a while you just you get fed up and you're just like why why am i bothering to do it a lot of times if you're still writing stuff that you like and you know like i did that with you know with why not it was you know, mostly my songs, and so it was kind of whatever pumped out of my head. Yeah, okay, great. I was enjoying, you know, all of that. It was just there. It was just more the, uh, you know, people having to leave and trying to hold it together and, and all of that. Just, just kind of wore it down for that one.
2: I'd love to know how these musicians motivate themselves to do the same songs over and over and over. again.
1: Well, that's the crowd. If you have a good crowd and you're and you're and you're, and you're feeding off of it. Then you definitely you'll you'll get into it. You know you'll just as long as you haven't let like arrogance creep in on yourself or whatever. But if if the crowd is you know yelling, screaming, feeding back, you, you can feed on that. And you forget the fact that you know it's the you know eight millionth time you've had to play cherry pie. So the
2: only thing different is the crowd at each show. The yeah, and songs are the same. the yeah. royalties are the same. The lights are the yeah. same. Yeah, it's just a question of always thought about yeah you know that, that you know they all say oh i saw fucking ed the beatles on ed sullivan it was a fucking eureka moment yeah and then oh i got my first guitar and oh i got my first band yeah and then it's like fucking i just wanted to play and play and play and play, mm-hmm. and play and when does that fucking when does the love of playing leave you yeah
1: and, and the other thing too with with the playing is obviously as you're getting older too so you know when when i started you know, I could play for hours because I had hours to do it. You know, and a lot of times too, you're you're young, you're pissed off, you don't have a lot of stuff, so you got a lot of shit to be angry about, and and so you you've got other like drivers happening in your brain, and you know now, you okay, you kind of yeah, well you get marriage. kids, marriage, work, ex wives, work, you know all that, and and then. You know, like, so now I've got some of the best equipment I've ever had, but you're I'm still, also...
2: still angry, though. I, yeah, I am still angry.
1: <laughs> yeah, how can you not be angry with kids and a wife? Uh, <laughs> so, I want to get out. But it's, 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 the, it's the, the, the whole idea of, of, you know, just if I do have time, I'm like, I'm beat. So I might play for a little while or like lately, I'm doing so much on the computer. It's like my hands are screwed up and then I can't play. You know, and, and, you know, the other, the other thing too is without having, you know, a lot of times having a, a co musician to play with, that was my big thing too is, you know, Jeff was on drums. Soon he started playing, boom, I could write a song. It was that quick. We just had that chemistry and I could just write song after song. Um, so, the, you know, that kind of not having that too is kind of like, eh. So it, it does get tougher and tougher to do it. Okay. All right. You know, but still, I mean, I'll listen to new stuff and, and, you know, look at equipment and, you know, interviews oh, I know and, you and, I know, you you know look at all that stuff <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and still look at, you know, oh, wow, that's a great, you know, that's a great new mix technique. And that's, wow, oh, I never thought about doing this. And, you know, you see, so you get a lot of those great ideas. You, you try out or you want to try out you, and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, there's still, there's still a drive there. Um, it's just right now, too, I think as you get older and you have all this other stuff, yeah, like all that invades your time i
2: hmm. wonder where the drive is for some of these guys when it comes to these projects though it it's money it's pure i i i genuinely believe it's purely money driven um ninety nine percent of it. yeah i mean i mean most of these guys they won't even play in the same room file shared over the internet yeah bringing out four or five albums a year paycheck next paycheck next and that's fine mm-hmm. i' no you know that's fine yeah. but It's flipped completely from when they started Sure. now. And I know the business is fucked up and it's changed over the years and all that. And they're all a lot older and they've got kids and wives and and, and what have you. But um, they still bring out the music, but, man, the fucking, you, you talk to JJ and I'd love to sit down with him for an hour or two and just shit share a drink with him Uh and i'd say the fucking horror stories he'd he'd tell you yeah because i i i think i scratched the surface talking to him yeah i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff
1: and it's and it's different now too I mean there's a lot of it the you know like if if i really 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 wanted to do it i could probably make decent money mixing stems which is something you're probably going what the fuck is that And most people listening have no idea what it is, but it goes on every day. And there's people out there that do it, There's a small handful of people that do it. And it's basically just, it's it's doing a mix of just this little tiny subset of something you hear. But it's something I could probably make some good money just going and mixing stems. You know, you get out there, you mix a few, you get your name known and people go, yeah, I want that guy to do that. And that's like something that, you know, Ten years ago didn't even exist and now it's like a little small subset of the business and but it's a lot of those small subset things too are also where people are, are making money now you know and and they may actually do better than the artist so you know there's all that other stuff in the music business
2: Should the business people always make more than the artist don't they
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually Yeah, yeah. all right What do you say? Want to roll JJ's very informative interview with some uh, never-be-heard-before stories in there? Yeah. All right, let's do it.
4: Richie? Yeah, JJ, how are you doing? Good. You're in New York? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm just outside of Boston. Cool. I'm from Ireland originally.
0: Wow, okay. uh, So from Dublin?
4: No, I'm from from Waterford. It's about 100 miles south of there, but I lived in Dublin Ah. for about 20 years.
0: Ah, you know, we were given the key to the city by the mayor of Dublin in 1983.
4: Okay. You played in Dalymount Park, didn't you?
0: Yes, we did. And the, and the mayor gave us the key to the city, which I wish I still knew where the hell that was. That was <laughs> kind of cool. That was kind of cool.
3: Yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah. So I, I've read the book. I've got a lot of questions for you. We'll get through them as best we can. But before we get into it, I have to say, I love your podcast, The French Connection. Very enjoyable.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You know, I try to be as um, informative and positive as I can be. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you enjoyed
4: it. Yeah. So the first question I have, so when it came to booking Twisted Sister for live shows, were there any major differences in how promoters conduct their business with you in different parts of the world? Oh, man, I, I...
0: you mean any uh, you know, as it applies to Twisted Sister or is it just in, in general
4: No Twisted Sister, because you hear stories about it 's different in South America than it is in the u s and maybe Europe and Japan. Are there any major differences like because you 're dealing with them directly?
0: Yeah, but I think that um, I think that uh, situations change, so in other words, um, some in some countries you operate on a fifty percent deposit and the rest upon completion. And in some locations, you get 100% before you ever walk out the door. Okay. And I, and I think that that happens to be, there's a lot of paranoia about certain promoters and certain countries and a feeling that, you know, you go there and then you get screwed.
3: Uh,
0: and, I, and it really is different depending on what particular country um, you get paid fully advanced for. It, but there are plenty of shows, by the way, that you get paid for fully advanced and the show never takes place. Very few people ever talk about that. But Mm -hmm. um, that has happened on a number of occasions where you've been paid, and then for whatever reason, the show gets canceled, and you still get paid. Because guess what? You stopped. You you were going to play it, which means you couldn't book another day, and the the promoters understand that. So it's very different, country to country, promoter to promoter.
4: Okay. Um, You said in the book you choose to be a rock star, and all your energies went into achieving that goal. I'm interested to know what was your definition of a rock star back then. Um,
0: well, I guess Keith Richards' template of what a rock star was was kind of like the way it looked and the way you carried yourself. Um, and and it's a very visceral, um, it's a very visceral uh, condition. And I think it's it's you know I don't know if there's rock stars anymore because even the nature of the business has changed. I mean, while the phrase "party like a rock star." is still famous phrase. I mean, they're not saying party like a World Series champion. They're not saying party like a race car, like a NASCAR champion or a Formula One champion. So the phrase party like a rock star is kind of universally understood as somebody who's larger than life and has a magnetism and an electricity that the average person doesn't have. And I think because that's the difference between just a musician and a performer. A rock star is a performer of rock music. And, and, and how you carry yourself in terms of wanting to make people emulate you, be you, that's, that's really what defines what a rock star is.
4: Mm. Now, when you made it, was being a rock star everything you thought it would be?
0: Absolutely not. <laughs> by, the time, by the time we made it, I was so bored with the whole thing. Uh, we had been at it for 12 years and whatever I thought was going to be the thing when I was 20 was not the way, it, the way it turned out. You know, when I was 11 and I and I saw the Beatles on television and thought that, oh man, that's like the greatest. That's what I want to be. I want to be that. Like that's just whatever that meant, whatever that meant. Like I think in those days, the big thing was a gold record. You know, that was a gold record. You have a gold record, you know. Oh. I think I think at the moment that I saw the Beatles on TV in 1964 and I said to my mom, you know, that's where I want to be, whatever that being was. I think if somebody had just said to me, OK, JJ, we're going to have a gold record. And I go, really? When? Like in five years? And they go, no, 20 years and six months from now. I think, <laughs> I, may have just,
3: I, think
0: I may have gone, fuck that. Like, yeah. You know, I think I may have just gone. Who the hell wants to sit around for, you know, the beauty of not knowing is the key. So we didn't know, um, what that meant. It just was a great idea. So by the time we made it, I was tired already. We'd been doing thousands and thousands of shows. And I think, when it finally happened, my attitude was just send me the check and leave me the hell alone. <laughs> you know, like yeah. just just pay me already. To so the the band was not a drug band, as you know. In the yeah,
3: book. yeah, yeah. The
0: band didn't didn't party. The band was pretty antisocial. So I never went to parties. I always stayed away from. I didn't really care about it. I didn't. I was older. You know, when that whole Southern California thing happened with all those bands from Southern California, Warren, you know, and Rat and Motley, we were way older than those guys. And we had already been through the mill. I already been through the whole drug scene, as I detail in the book. Yeah. And so I'd already been through a, a ridiculous drug scene in New York City and even a further ridiculous drug scene in Amsterdam. So it's like when someone's telling me about drugs, I go, dude, you don't even have, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you have, you know, so we're in Southern California and these bands are trying to, but man, we have a party. I said, man, I survived the New York City drug scene. I survived Amsterdam. It's like I've been through there, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I have no interest in doing that shit again. And the beauty of Twisted was that D never did it. And Mendoza never did it, and they hated to sit more than I did. Uh, So we stayed away from it, and because we stayed away from it, the party aspect of whatever someone's fantasy is about what rock and roll stardom is supposed to be about uh, did not exist in our life, in our world. Uh, You know, we just basically did the shows, got in the bus, went to the next venue, did the show, got in the bus, went to the next venue, on and on and on, got in a plane, flew to another country, Um, and went home, rested, and then did it again, wash, rinse, repeat, like a shampoo commercial. So in that respect, it was very, very, very different from what I had thought it would have been like when I fantasized about it as a a teenager.
4: Yeah. Uh, JJ, you mentioned there, just give me the check when you made it big. I'm interested to know, when you did get your first big check, what did you spend the money on?
0: Oh, I bought a... I think I bought a car. I bought... It's funny, I bought... I asked the guys at Motley Crew uh, when I met them in 83, I said, so what did you do with your first royalty check? They said, I bought a car. And that's exactly what I did. I bought a Cadillac or some stupid thing like that. Like, I just decided... I want to buy something, you know, ridiculous. I didn't even need it. I live in New York City. You don't need a car in New York City. <laughs> it just re- it represented something for me.
3: You know? Okay. Okay.
4: It was a
0: symbol of success. But it was kind of like, it, it didn't really matter. You know, I was living where I was living. I wasn't going to change that. I wasn't going to change my living conditions. And by the way, I was older. I was 34. So I already had been through bankruptcies. And I'd already been through like losing everything on a number of occasions. It's a detailed in the book. So I never wanted to alter my lifestyle to the point where I could never replicate my lifestyle. Okay. So I was always very I was very, very, very concerned. You have to realize that I am a, I came to this conclusion as a young age that there's three kinds of people on the planet Earth. The people who make it happen, the people who watch it happen, and the people who say what happened. And I was not gonna be part of the what happened crew. I was gonna be either make it happen or watch it happen, but I was never gonna be the kind of idiot who goes, I don't understand what happened, man. It's all our money, it's all gone. I know exactly where every penny went and why and why it went and good or bad, good decisions, bad decisions, whatever. I don't lose sleep at night thinking, oh, man, like, what happened? I don't understand. Like, who took advantage of me? Yeah. I I don't have to worry about that shit.
4: Yeah. Now, one of the things that comes across in the book is your thirst for knowledge that you weren't afraid to ask questions. Um, but when you started asking the label your business questions, how receptive were they to them? Did they like? Were they like the magicians that didn't want to reveal their secrets to you?
0: Um, no, I found guys in the label who did because I'm very good at finding out that shit like really good at it i i, I just kind of keep digging it was like back in the bar days when the band was uh the band was being told by club owners that we we weren't drawing well i thought to myself that's bullshit i know exactly what we're doing i hired a guy to sit in the bar with a clicker and click people coming in and out yeah. And i got to know the bartenders and i found out how much the drink averages were there was no way i was going to listen to this bullshit and believe it So when you know knowledge is power, when you really know your value, then you can then start to negotiate from a a point of power. So I always want to know the truth. The truth I found out early was horrible. The truth of record deals is horrible. The indentured servitude nature of contracts is horrible. The legal ripoff of the artist is horrible. The royalty statements that they give you are horrible. You have to really dig deep in to start to understand how fucked up this business is. And it is fucked up. Hmm. You just have to just go. And then, you know, you just, your eyes glaze over at how bad this visit is now. Having said that, if we didn't succeed at the level we did, you wouldn't be interviewing me. Yeah, true. So, obviously, something happened. Obviously, we transcended... The fucked up part of it, as as did KISS, as did ACDC, as did Judas Priest. You know, you ask all of us who've been around, and all of us will have horror stories to tell. And they'll also tell you that when you're around as long as we have, you get your ass kicked the first go round. you're smarter the second time around. But most acts, as you know, don't have a second life, or a third life, or a fourth life, or a fifth life. Twisted Sister, Judas Priest. ACDC kiss we're 50-year veterans of the music business, and we've able able, over the years, to turn things around in our favor, but you have to really get into the weeds, and you got to get your ass kicked in order to learn.
4: Mm. JJ, who in the band took the most convincing when it came to selling management decisions about uh, the band? Was there, Or yeah. did it all depend on what it was, or was there one guy who was always resistant?
0: No, I, I mean, Mark was... Um, that's a hard question to ask. Yeah, yeah, because there were so many different times. You know, ever since I fully took over management, um, I mean, I fully took over management out of the fifty years for forty of those fifty years. But I would say when the band ended in '88, and and I fully took over in '88, um, nobody ever questioned anything after that. And I don't mean, and I don't mean that in a. I, I want to put this in clearly. When a band member manages a band and the band makes money, there's an understanding that we all have the same interests at heart. I don't make money unless they make money. That's how that works. So if I sit there and create projects and situations, then they benefit from them. They're very happy. So I think ever since the band uh, ended in 88 and then I continued on with the business, me and Mendoza produced a bunch of records, greatest hits packages during the dormant period of time, uh-huh. When the band came back, I think everybody was appreciative that, um, that I was sitting there and would help steward the thing. But you know what? You don't do it in a vacuum. You don't do it in a vacuum. You, know, you, you need a good agent. You need a good business manager. You need all those pieces. It's all collaboration anyway. And besides which, if it wasn't for D writing these songs, you and I wouldn't be having a conversation, would we? Yeah. No. Um, you know, so Dee's a brilliant writer, brilliant performer, probably the best front man I've ever seen in my life who's tremendous, and uh, Mendoza is a phenomenal producer and a great bass player. and AJ and Mark were great rhythm sections and Eddie's a fantastic guitar player. And if none of that happened, if none of those guys did that job, it wouldn't matter how good a manager I am. We wouldn't have success.
4: Yeah, you need it all. Yeah. um Now I've had many musicians over the years tell me that interference from outside ruined the band and everything would have been fine if you, had, if you let the band be the band. Is that something you agree with, or can interference be beneficial?
0: Oh, I don't know. I don't really... That certainly didn't apply to Twisted Sister. So I can't, I can't say. Okay. That, absolute, that, that kind of a broad-based statement. I, I cannot... It's not like girlfriends got involved, or other managers got involved, or lawyers got involved. So while I do know, of course, the history of Yoko Ono and the Beatles and John Eastman and everybody else's, you know, horror stories. As it applies to Twisted, not,
4: no. Okay. Now you prided yourself on putting on a great live show. What's the sickest you've been before a show and still pulled it off?
0: Oh man, I was dying, literally (laughs) dying, 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 truly dying of an allergic reaction to anthocillin on the European tour in 1986. And, Um, I was so sick that I, on the last show of that tour, I was draped. I couldn't even get my stage clothes. I had towels on under my, and I wore a sweatshirt and I, I don't know how I got through the show. I mean, I was, I was, I didn't know I was actually dying. And uh, when I got back to New York and they found out what happened, they immediately gave me drugs and cleared up that condition, but it was awful. So I, we did that entire tour three months in Europe very stressful tours during a lot of terrorism, a lot of bomb scares. We were the only American band over there. Everyone was afraid to to travel to Europe to play. That was horrible. I was really sick. Um, Also, when the band reformed in 2001 and started touring in 2003 and 2004, I had atrial fibrillation, which is a heart disease, and um, I performed sick with AFib on a number of occasions and probably shouldn't have, and I did before it was cured. Uh, so there have been times where it's been where it's really pushed you, but your uh, your um, performance response based upon years and years of conditioning gets you through it. But it was very tough.
4: Uh-huh. JJ, do you have a favorite country in the world that you love to visit that you visited through touring over the years?
0: Well, England has been very important yeah. to the band. Uh, historically, the, the the band was 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 basically saved because of England. So to say, to not have England in there would be terrible. Uh, however, um, the festivals in Germany also created an enormous um, history for the band to succeed, uh, the, the, the and succeeded in, and helped uh, create the image that the band was a headline attraction around the world. So I have to say the festivals in Germany were important. Sweden, of course, from a... From a, um, from a um, From a a record sales point of view, um, proportionally speaking, I think we sold more records in Sweden and Canada versus the population than any other country. So those countries are extremely important. Uh Um, And then, of course, you have South America, which is an outlier because we did not play South America during our heyday. And we came back and, and discovered South America. And South America turned out to be um, an unbelievable place. I mean, there's a reason why many, many, many artists, not just metal artists, but there's a reason why many, many artists do their, do their concerts uh, or record their concerts in, um, in Buenos Aires, for example, the fans are, are unbe- The fans are just remarkable. I mean, it's hmm. the, the passion, but it's not just there. I mean, you know Buenos Aires is particularly known for it and people do know it bands know it and they talk about how important Buenos Aires is Um, but uh, Brazil has been phenomenal and Chile has been phenomenal and Bolivia you know we we, they said that we put on the greatest show they've ever seen in a soccer stadium in Bolivia and yet I couldn't breathe because you're so high up you know the altitude was was horrible um, and Mexico, I mean, we're the, you know, our number one Spotify country is in Mexico. So th- there there you go. So uh, our last show with Kiss uh, that we ever played in 2016 was in Mexico. And Mexico has been extremely important to the band. So it's not easy. I, 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 if I had to say one, I would have to say England because of the history of the band in England. Okay. And, of course, we have a new uh, double album coming out in, in November with... Greatest Hits Live, Greatest Hits Studio. And uh, the live stuff is all recorded in England because for reasons that are just interesting, um, it's it's, what's interesting is that the Marquis, Hammersmith, um, Live at Reading, um, Live at the Astoria, they're all British and they're all recorded. So we have a history of of insanely great performances coming out of
4: England. Now... You lay down your keys to success. There's seven of them, like tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, civility, trust, excellence, and discipline. I want to ask you, did the ba- all the band members in the Classic lineup agree with all of those with the same passion you did?
0: Um, I You know, I never discussed that with them, and that really wasn't an issue for me. You know, when I put this thing together, it dawned on me over years and years and years that the evolution of the band and its business and the successes were a combination of all sorts of unique perspectives. And and what I tend what I did say was that we were turned down more times in a big sheet and come back more times in Freddie Cooper. And yeah. that's absolute that's absolutely one hundred percent true. I mean, yes, we we did all those things. Um, as to whether they perceive it that way, I have no idea. I never I never asked him. So do I don't know. If you, he did
4: do or you think, one. JJ, that because you were the leader, that they just followed you and you had all those?
0: Um, I think, yes. I think we remember there was a two track thing here. Dean did the creative stuff, he wrote the songs, and I think everybody followed it because, you know, he had a great track record. He was a phenomenal songwriter. Yeah, and we we believed in his vision for for all the years that he did the creative side. And I think from a business st- standpoint, nobody else in the band, I believe, um, had a ma- had a management vision. So they trusted my management vision. And then over the years, as the band got older, my relationships with the record labels became deeper because I became much more in the business side of things, uh-huh. and the band trusted my my knowledge of the record industry. And the record industry is a fucked up business, like I said. Huh. But um, I made it my point to really learn the ins and outs of it. And, and I know more about it than most people, than even most managers.
4: Okay. You said in the book many times that there was hate. And that's a strong word amongst the, you know, amongst the band members, uh, especially with you and D. Now, one of the things you said that you need to have for success is trust. If, there, if hate exists, can you have trust?
0: Well, that's a great question. And it just depends on where the hate comes from. So there was trust on one level and there was dislike, heavy dislike on another. Um, so, you know, I think towards the end when things really fell apart, I think that the, the, the trust became difficult to come by. Uh, just in the, in the feeling that you were rely on somebody to be there for you you know, in that kind of amorphous kind of state. Um, but I can tell you that the band has been back together again now for 20 odd years. Yeah. And, and we talk every day. I mean, every day people always go, you talk to the guys Yeah, every day. I had dinner with Eddie two nights ago. I saw Mark two, you know, a month ago, D and I are constantly talking because our music is licensed so much. So, um, we are like, um, a married couple that got divorced and then fell in love again.
4: Hmm. Now, I'm a huge fan of the Love Is For Suckers record, okay? And I know, uh, an, I have an idea what went down with that album. But I'm interested to know, what made you say yes to the whole concept of that record when it seems to go against some of the, your keys to success?
0: Uh, well, at that point, I really thought it was over. And I wasn't managing the band at that point. And the band was essentially done. Um, it wasn't a surprise to me that everything came crashing down. You know, nothing is perfect. I talk about that in the book. Yeah. Nothing that's perfect. And the lessons I learned from that record and from the experiences that we all went through kind of informed me as to how I was going to move in the future in life learned enormous lessons from that. So there is no perfect scenario under any circumstances. We all went through a very, very, very tough time. And frankly, I think we all even ask ourselves why that record even existed, because it really was a Dee Snider solo record. It should have been a Dee Snider solo record. So there were, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of poor decisions at the end. There's no and no I wasn't part of it. Because in my head, I was already trying to figure out a way to end it. Because okay. the dream had already fallen apart in my mind at that point.
4: Yeah. Did you not see Red Beach in the studio at all, tracking guitars?
0: I saw him all the time.
4: Okay. What did you think he was doing?
0: Well, I knew that he was the de facto guitar player for every single act that the producer produced. It wasn't just us. Yeah. Bo Hill brought Red Beach for everybody. And, and if, is that unusual? I don't know. I mean, the history of rock and roll, how many times do we hear this guy played drums on this track and this guy played guitar on this track and this guy came in on this track and this one played bass on this track? You hear it all the time. So if you're just passionate enough to separate yourself from it, you say, okay, fine. Like, for example, Tom Worman brought in singers to do background vocals for Stay Hungry. Up until that point, we had never thought about that. But he had go-to singers. In fact, Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles has gone on record as saying he sang background. Did you know that?
4: No. <laughs> yeah,
0: M- much to my surprise. Uh, he was quoted in the, in the Eagles documentary that during the time the Eagles were down, um, he was sitting around L.A. doing, you know, just like trying to do whatever, and he wound up doing studio work. Now, I have no recollection that Timothy B. Schmidt did any vocals whatsoever. And I even called Tom Warney, who produced the record, and I said, Timothy B. Smith just took credit for doing background vocals on Stay Hungry. And he went, not in my mind, he didn't. <laughs> so the point, so the, the point being is that studio guys float around all over the place. yeah, And producers use them randomly when they want. So, of course, Red Beach, who's a great player, was a, a go-to guy for, um, for Bow Hill and so yes, I certainly knew he was around.
4: Yeah. Final question before I leave you go, JJ. When all is said and done, do you count your friendship now with the other Twist Assist or bandmates as your greatest achievement that through it all, you emerged on the other side as friends?
0: Yes. Thank you. Again, you're asking great questions, and congratulations to you, because a lot of people don't go this deep, okay? So you obviously do, and I appreciate that. Um, I consider the band's rekindling in its relationship to be a must, a must, not the most important. I'll I'll put that up to having a kid and grandchildren. You know what I mean? That's Yeah, not, yeah. But I, will say, but I will say, I will say, um, although I have a funny story. If you want to hear a funny story? Yeah, I go really ahead. I really appreciate this. So back in the bar days, like back in 1977, we're playing every Tuesday night at a club called The Four and Aft in White Plains, New York four and aft. It's a sailing reference, four and aft. Uh-huh. So, uh, and it was a tiny club and we're really, brutally loud. And one one night, some guy's heckling us. You know, you don't go loud. You don't go loud. So typically, these idiots who do this don't even realize that me and Mendoza and D in our heels are six feet seven inches tall. So when we call them out on stage and they come on stage and they're like usually five eight five nine, and they're surrounded by me, D. And and then goes there, they go, sorry, man. (laughs) I
3: didn't
0: mean to to say anything, man. I'm really sorry about that. So anyway, this one idiot guy is like, so he's on the stage. You're not loud enough. He's still telling us. You're not loud enough. He's just, keep saying you're not loud So I grabbed him by the hair, and I put his head in the marshal cabinet. You know, we had three (laughs) marshals. I said, loud enough? He goes, no. So I told the road crew to duct tape the kid to the
3: amplifier.
0: (laughs) So we duct duct tape the kid in a Jesus Christ-like position, your arms out, Yeah. To a stack of Marshalls. Picture this, right? This band is on stage and he's being duct taped. Full out Jesus on the Marshall and The whole set we're playing and I keep turning around going, I wonder how this guy's doing and he keeps giving me the thumbs up. Like, this is great. <laughs> like, you know, eventually cut him down, right? And I always thought to myself, what happened to that guy? I wonder if that guy's alive. I wonder what happened to that guy. So one day, I'm walking through Grand Central Station and I hear someone yell like, hey, JJ, and I figured, oh, great, you know. I don't normally respond, but for some reason I did. And this guy comes up and he goes, hey, man, hey, man, remember that night before an ass, man, when you duct taped that guy in the apple?"
3: <laughs>
0: and I went, was it you? He goes, no, man, that was my best friend. And I said, is he still alive? He says, is he still alive? He still tells people that was the greatest man.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I said, is the guy married, the kid? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, that's still the best night of his life. I said, <laughs> I said you should send him to a therapist, my friend. <laughs> tell him that JJ says, go to a freaking therapist, some freaking you know, psychological work done. That was the best point of his life. So there, I don't tell that story to too many people. So there's, there's an exclusive story
4: for you. Brilliant. All right, JJ, do you want to tell people where they can get in touch with you and get a copy of the book?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Well, first of all, it, I, you know, Amazon obviously sells the book, I don't know in Europe how one goes about doing it, but if they go to my website, jjfrench.com, J-A-Y-J-E-Y, french.com, you can easily find that out. The book is a bizwar. It's a business book and a memoir. It's called Twisted Business, and uh, go to Amazon, and maybe you'll be able to find a connection for a European outlet. I do know that there's European outlets um, for the book There has to be is a lot of people in Europe have gotten it. Also, you can email me directly, directly, Here's an email address. It's ask J J J Y J Y T S as in Twisted Sister. Ask J J T S at Gmail, and I will answer your emails. I also have a podcast, which is the JJ French Connection J Y J Y F R E N C H Connects. That's on Apple and Spotify and Podcast One. So there's so many different ways to reach me. So many different ways to connect to me. There's my website, there's Twisted Sister fan page, there's my Instagram. Um, JJ French, my Twitter, and that's how you can all reach me. So I'm about as plugged as I possibly can be and still have a life.
4: Mm. JJ, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for the music.
0: Thank you so much for being a fan. I appreciate it. Thank you.
4: All right. Have a good rest of the day. You too. Bye bye. All right.
1: Bye. All right. There you go. And I, I, I got to say, and I, I know I texted it to you too when, when I was done editing, but I cannot imagine being taped to a Marshall. At full bore, because I know that if I was taped to mine, I would have even more herring damage than I already have. Uh, (laughs) You know, because it's it is loud. It is really, really loud. You know, it's even here. I think I've only ever run that thing at like maybe two, and even then it was like, oh crap.
2: Did you see Twisted Sister?
1: In I don't the 80s. No, I don't remember seeing them. I never saw them. Yeah, I don't ever remember seeing them. I
2: taught. I the Daily Mount park gig that I I mentioned, I think they were on the bill with Motörhead. Yeah. And I can't remember the other band. It might have been uh Black Sabbath with Gillan, it might have been huh. but I was 12. And okay. I was, I was living hundred miles away.
1: So. That was definitely early days for them too, because that was I I wanna say that was the tour where they basically used Lemmy to introduce them. So that Probably would he would he would basically kill the bullshit. Yeah. And be like, Yeah, these are my mates and you know, and they'd be like, Oh, and they'd give give him a chance. So um yeah, oh no, that's uh, cool. Well, I'll
2: I'll tell you now in, in eighty and I know this because I grew up in Ireland in that time. There weren't many blokes coming out with make up on, on stage. <laughs> 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 yeah. singing songs yeah um i know that for a fact yeah (laughs) (laughs) so maybe it was a good thing that lemmy came out and introduced them
1: (laughs) yeah it's uh yeah wow that would have been cool if you'd seen that yeah definitely yeah yeah anyway yeah but that was a good 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 chat and yeah i mean i was i was really happy to hear him have some good things to say too about the questions and stuff too um because yeah that was you know definitely uh um one of those top-notch ones. and
2: Yeah, I was very happy with how it went.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. For a change. <laughs> <laughs> nah, no, you've been on a roll. Uh. So, um, yeah, so this is kind of the, I guess in a way, kind of the, the new normal right now for us is, you know, last week we, you know, got busy and, yep, so we didn't end up putting a, putting a show out. It was kind of like, I might have been able to throw something together. I definitely had some audio, but it was like...
2: We've only got one
1: show other than this
2: yeah. audio, Yeah, we've Then I've all, we, we've nothing banked.
1: Yeah, and it'll be and that'll be a that'll be actually be a 2 parter because it was a long one. Um but yeah, it's um definitely kind of the new normal for what we're doing and it's especially with yeah, I mean you've been crazy work life and and, yeah. and I've been busy and it does take a little bit of pressure off. And we talk about the love of the music. Um this makes it so that when we, we put a show together, we're like we're up for it you know mm-hmm. and it, and it's fun and it was uh it wasn't like oh shit i got to get this done into deadline and, and all that so it's 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 actually bringing a little bit more enjoyment back to it and um we're also free from on the time you know that it's uh, okay if we're going to do a half an hour episode great we're doing an hour one great whatever it is um so no limits on it as well and uh, so that works out um pretty decent people seem to be happy with it so you know, we might do more do
2: discussion episodes just the two of us as well
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, really we definitely kind of have it on the um, on the docket. We are going to do just a we'll do a discussion on on Black Album 30th anniversary because yeah. it, it's it bears talking about. It. It's yeah. a it's a cool topic, and I know sure. that you probably have one set of experiences, and I have another one. So I think it'll be a great discussion. Yeah. Um, and and definitely, while we're on the subject of that too, is that um, if you have uh, you know if you go to YouTube, there's a great Metallica episode that was done for Apple Music. And it's about a two-hour episode, and it's a really, really good interview with all four of the guys, and um, very, very open.
2: When you, mean, when you say all four, is that Robert or Jason? Robert. Okay.
1: Um, but I'm glad you mentioned that. But there was some real, genuine, um, thoughtful things that James says about Jason, and things that they about how they wish they had done things differently how they realize how integral he was how much he put into the like it was genuine just outpouring from James on all of that um and that was and that's a deep into the interview but before that just a really good um you know the interviewer was very pressing on things, and uh, at one point, you know, he asked Lars about you know new music, and he tells Lars, "I don't want to hear." Well, you know, we're always making the and he did like a whole Lars impression, right? And Lars is just kind of sitting there like, "Shit," <laughs> and was kind of forced to make more than the stock answer, and uh, but it, it's a great interview.
2: Did you see the before we go? Um, did you see uh, Metallica or on Howard Stern? And um, they had Elton John on it. And
1: no, Ed- but I know there was a lot of stuff that went around after that about you know G- kind of James saying a lot of great things about Elton and stuff. Yeah.
2: Elton said that "Nothing Else Matters" is one of the best songs ever written, mm. and Hetfield could not fucking believe it. He was yeah. blown away by yeah. a compliment like that. He was, and, and he, he mentioned he, he
1: actually mentions it in the Apple Music interview. It was kind of like a like you know, never even having that, you know, he's looking at this pantheon of songs and stuff and to have somebody that is, has songs in that pantheon. Right. Um, and so I think he mentioned something about saying, well, how can you compare that against, you know, from the guy that wrote a candle in the wind, you know, that kind of, so in, again, like I said, that interview, very open. Mm-hmm. And, um, of Let's course, you know, a- Kirk kind of does that little kind of, Hippy dippy space shot kind of thing that he, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, it's you know just genuine Kirk, but it's. Oh, rocked on interviews first. No, I
2: haven't. No. I haven't seen seen or heard from him. Yeah, about that album.
1: Maybe he just doesn't want to. But it's uh, it's it's a great interview, anyways. But yeah, well, I think that's definitely something we're going to have to have a discussion about because it was a. I mean, for one, it, when that came out and you think about all the albums that came out that year and you have that, and, and in some cases, for what was big, that was almost in stark contrast to them. Um, and just, it was, it, yeah, it, was, it was a big turning point for them. And, you know, it was a polarizing moment for a lot of fans and stuff, too. And, and yeah, it's, it's worth a discussion you know, because. What of, I'd love to talk about that album.
2: It's Randy Staub, the engineer. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, that's got my, me thinking now because I know someone who might know him. <laughs> that'd be great yeah that would be great yeah because he engineered the record mm-hmm. with Bob
1: yeah he's always he's the guy sitting there next to Bob and all the mm. studio parts I might
2: reach out and see if I can get contact info yeah.
1: him. usually he's got the because they, they labeled the chairs usually his chairs labeled stub that's if he's allowed to talk <laughs>
2: if you talk we will we will find you
1: <laughs> well I mean a lot of that was filmed anyway so no, it's know. you know it's. Uh, but yeah I think that would be that would be great yeah alright let me Actually, Go then. get them.
2: Well, we'll, <laughs> we'll see. But, um, yeah. All right. Put well, you're all night shit. shit yeah.
1: Night shit. So uh, what do you say we uh, before we end up doing that and you get in trouble when you no, get no. home?
2: W- one final thing I have to ask you. Oh. I've seen it up there. Uh-huh. Are you still listening to the Iron Maiden record?
1: I have not even had a chance to listen to all of it yet.
2: I listened to a lot of it when it came out, mm-hmm. and I haven't listened to it in weeks. Huh. And I, I, this is just my me personally. I love a matter of life and death, and the albums after that, After Moments, but they they don't grab me the way that that the Matter of Life and Death did. Yeah. So you got Final Frontier and then Book of Souls. Uh huh. And the new one. Um. You know, people are saying it's a masterpiece and it, it has some great songs on it, but I just haven't been. Motivated to pick it up, and yeah. I mean, I mean, like, oh, I yeah, mean, like I some of the ones that I've heard, again. it's kind
1: of like, okay, you know, it's like, okay, I know who wrote that. Oh, yeah, I'm right. Okay, I, I know who wrote and, and and like some of that personality and stuff comes through the songs, which is great. Um, but yeah, I haven't had enough time to just and I listened to the, pop I used it on to it a
2: lot now when it came out. Yeah, I, 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 I drive to and from work every day, like it's in the 45 minutes to an yeah. hour, so I'd, I'd like you'd put it on, and then again, you'd put it on and put it on again, and I the last couple of songs on it, I must have listened to them, like the Steve Harris songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've probably listened to the album 10 or 15 times. Yeah. I can't even remember now how they go.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's weird is I've actually listened to the Smith-Cotson album. That's a great album. More than than I've that listened is, to... That's to a great Jutsu, record. So, yeah.
2: That is a great record.
1: Yeah. So it's been... I you know, I have listened to that a lot, which is kind of weird. It's been... There's just been a couple, few lately that I've been grabbing a lot. Um, you know, the Todd LaTorre album. Um, I've, been awesome I've been popping that in. And it. I, it's, yeah, I just, but I just, again, it's, too, once I once I hit the weekend, I mean, I'm just like, I'm brain dead, you know.
2: I've had the Halloween album on the last couple of days. Hmm. The new one. The new one, and, yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I, ha- I had that on was uh, something happened in my car and it was supposed to I was thinking it would get fixed in a few days and then two and a half months later you get your car back and the Halloween CDs in it (laughs) because i would only listened to it once or twice when it came out and I put it on the last couple of days and I'm like, this is really fucking good I thought it was good when I heard it the first time but yeah, uh, yeah, there's some cracking stuff on on, on that Nice Um,
4: Yeah (laughs) It's like, woo
1: Yeah All right what do you say? We, this a wrap? Yeah. All right. That's it. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for myself and me, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal. Everything else
3: is insignificant. <sighs>